Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. So there are a lot of paradoxes, as usual, I guess, in American public discourse. Uh, and the one that I'm thinking about right now is as we celebrate the life and accomplishments and mourn the passing of Senator John McCain. You know, I think we're talking less and less about the so-called maverick image and more and more about his collegiality, more and more about his ability to form alliances, cross party lines, sometimes reject party orthodoxy, uh, his ability to get along with uh, a lot of different kinds of people, as opposed to the other part of them that often got celebrated, which was the ability to buck certain kinds of people who aren't ordinarily all that easy to buck. So, I mean, that's kind of ironic because we're probably at a kind of low watermark for collegiality right now. I mean, the very thing we're getting excited about in terms of John McCain uh, and, and, and celebrating is the thing that we are least connected to as a society. So we're going to talk about that today. We're going to take some phone calls later on, but I'm so lucky and happy to have Yasha Munk uh, back with us, lecturer at Harvard University and senior fellow in the political reform program at New America. He writes a weekly column for Slate, where he also hosts the Good Fight podcast, and he's the author of The People Versus Democracy, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. Thank you so much. So let's talk about this a little bit. I mean, this this is really, and, and you wrote about this too in Slate, this is part of the, uh, well, you begin actually with a, a quote from somebody else talking about the, the, the civil society depends on the ability of people to distinguish between an adversary and an enemy. An adversary is somebody uh, you may need to persuade uh, to your point of view or maybe win an argument against. An enemy is somebody you need to destroy. McCain, for the most part, seemed to get this, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so some people are celebrating John McCain as somebody who is in some ways bipartisan or even nonpartisan. He certainly did have those moments of being a maverick, um, of working, for example, with Democrats on campaign finance reform and the very important McCain-Feingold bill. Um, but but what I appreciate about him is something a little different from, from what's been said by a lot of people in the last few days. Because I think by and large, he was a partisan. He was a convinced conservative. He fought for values he deeply believed in. And by and large, there were values with which I uh, personally had certain differences. But he was able to recognize that you need to have decency towards even the people with whom you disagree. That even as we use these democratic institutions of ours to fight for our own point of view, to try and get our policies passed, but we are most passionate about, we also together have to preserve the rules that allow us to have this kind of competition. Right. And he, he was a big uh, champion of something in the Senate called regular order, uh, which has a very Senate-specific meaning. But uh, I hear it also in what you're saying, too. There are conventions built into our political discourse, or there were anyway, that kind of put a cap on how hot things could get. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the best moment of this is something that's been played, uh, you know, a bunch in, in, in the media and on Twitter and so on in the last days, but it really is, is absolutely crucial to understanding the distinction. Um, in the last days of his presidential campaign in 2008, um, he was at a town hall and a couple of the people there 
um, basically said, I'm, I'm scared of what will happen to my country if Barack Obama becomes president. I think he's an Arab. Yasha, you know what? Uh, I think we can play the clip of what you are talking about right now. Here it is. And uh, frankly, we're, we're scared. Um, we're scared of an Obama presidency. First of all, I want to be president of the United States, and obviously I do not want Senator Obama to be. But I have to tell you, I have to tell you, he is a decent person and a person that you do not have to be scared as president of the United States. Now, I, I just, now I just, now, now look, I, I, if I didn't think I wouldn't be one heck of a lot better president, I wouldn't be running, okay? And that's the point. That's, that's the point. Um, I got to ask you a question. I do not uh, believe in, I can't trust Obama. I, I have read about him, and he's not, he's not, he's a, um, he's an Arab. He is not. No man. No man. No man. No man. He's a, he's a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on, on fundamental issues, and that's what this campaign is all about. He's not. Thank you. So what's remarkable about this clip is that he's absolutely clear that he deeply disagrees with Barack Obama. He absolutely is clear that he thinks it's very important for the country that, that John McCain rather than Barack Obama should win the presidency. He's not bipartisan. He's not nonpartisan. He's saying, I'm the better guy. This country's going to be better off if I win. But if the other person wins, we can still have a decent country. And you know what? Even though I think that the other candidate is wrong, I think he's a decent human being and we don't have to be afraid when my side sometimes loses democratic elections. That, to me, is a better thing than being bipartisan or nonpartisan. It's being a decent partisan. It's fighting for your side of the aisle, for your values, while recognizing that the other side is legitimate as well. I'm going to also, you know, first of all, there's just no question. That's a wonderful moment. But it was a wonderful moment in a campaign that didn't have that many of those kinds of wonderful moments. And it's interesting to listen to your podcast, John Favreau's new podcast, The Wilderness, uh, and um, and Leon Nafak's uh, podcast, Slow Burn, which is now dealing with the Clinton Star controversies. I, I sort of listened to them all, you know, alternatingly a lot. And and you you get an interesting picture that really starting in the mid-90s, I, I think we move into one of the things creating the problems we're trying to address right now. And that really is a politics of personal destruction. Instead of trying to win elections on merits with a little bit of, you know, sharp elbows here and there, you know, the the way that Clinton was gone after, uh, the very personal way in which he was gone after, became more and more a hallmark of our uh, politics. So, yeah, McCain was great in 2008, particularly at a moment like that. On on the other hand, Sarah Palin was running around the country conducting one of the more xenophobic vice presidential <laughs> campaigns I've ever seen. And others of his surrogates, including Joe Lieberman, who said it was an open question whether Barack Obama was a Marxist. Uh, you know, they were starting they were still engaging in what I see as symptoms of the very disease that McCain at times was trying to treat. I, I don't know. React to that. I, I mean, look, I think that's right. I think certainly. Um, picking Sarah Palin as his vice presidential running mate was the biggest mistake in John McCain's career, and he himself expressed uh, regret for it in very clear terms. Um, I also think that uh, you know even the people who we can celebrate at 
as being the best at trying to preserve those kinds of rules in the rough and tumble of politics will sometimes be drawn um, to, 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 to statements that, that aren't acceptable or to having people around them who are useful to them politically who make statements that aren't acceptable. And, and I certainly don't want to say that John McCain was never guilty of that. I think uh, practically anybody, any politician is at times guilty of that. But if you look at the entirety of his career, and I would certainly say including the entirety of the way in which he ran the 2008 campaign, um, it, it's clear that he was a man of principle who recognized that there have to be certain things on which we agree, not despite disagreeing on others, but so that we can disagree on other things without destroying our country. Um, and when you compare the way that the 2008 presidential campaign looked to the way the 2016 presidential campaign looked, I just think there's absolutely no comparison to the extent to which John McCain, of course Barack Obama, um, uh, endorsed those values, protected those values, um, and, and put forward competing visions for the country without delegitimizing each other. Right. And I, I do think that we're in the throes of something very different here eight years after uh, the 2008 campaign and or more than eight years now. But um, and it might be worth talking a little bit more about that. I was listening to an interview this morning with Trent Lott, uh, who was, of course, one of the leaders of, of the Senate during McCain's era. He described this instance where he referred on Meet the Press to President Clinton, then President Clinton, as a brat. So this would have been in the 90s. Uh, and he felt moved to call the White House the next morning and get the president on the phone and apologize and say that he'd overstepped, that that was excessive language, and he received some kind of absolution from President Clinton. It, that kind of channel, those that, that made that kind of civility possible, I mean, first of all, brat <laughs> in 2018 right. doesn't really seem like very much at all. But but forget that. The, the idea that one has overstepped, one calls one's adversary up and says, I get that. I kind of ex- went outside the Overton window or however we want to talk about this. It's just almost impossible to imagine right now, not just vis-a-vis Trump, but vis-a-vis the two sides of the aisle. They just don't seem capable of doing that. You know, it's a funny thing because um – We've had a huge debate, for example, of the notion of civility in, in, in this country in the last few months. And I certainly think that there can be appeals to civility which essentially boil down to an appeal to be complicit in ongoing injustice and so on. Um, but but the sort of joy with which some people are calling for us to disregard all considerations of civility, I think is quite destructive. And it's out of keeping with lots of other parts of American life. There's the sense that if you really care for something, then you can't need to bother with things like civility. And in other arenas, we don't think that. Americans love sports. And we absolutely understand that believing in fair play or believing in, um, you know, shaking your opponent's hands doesn't mean that you want to win the game less. And in fact, it doesn't make you less able to win the game. Um, So I think we could actually take an example from the way in which we deal with strong egos and a passion to win um, uh, in other arenas like sports uh, and try and emulate that a little bit in politics. 
Let's stay with sports for a second, because I think there's another way that the analogy kind of works, kind of in the in reverse. All right, and and it's more about sports fans, because you're absolutely correct, Yasha, that the shaking of hands and the ritualized interaction between teams on the field has a very specific meaning and a very specific purpose, and once again sets a boundary. We don't want to get too far into hating one another. Uh, you'll see this in football games, too. If somebody's down and injured and it looks like a bad injury, players from both teams will immediately kneel. This is another kind of kneeling that goes on in football. They drop to their knees and they pray for the athlete who's down on the field if he seems to, he, maybe he's broken his neck or something, and, and what team you're on becomes meaningless. But the fans are in a different state, right? Because they don't really have to get along with one another, and there's no real upside to getting, there's no upside for a Red Sox fan to see virtue in, in the Yankees. And I think our politics has kind of become that way, too. You know, that they're ultimately in a healthy society. We can have ideological differences with the other side, but see virtue in the people, some virtue in some of the people on the other side. But we are in this kind of hypervigilant state now where all we really look for in the other side is something that could possibly outrage, offend us, or, or wound us. Uh, and that, to me, is the bad way that this resembles sports, you know, sports fandom anyway. Uh, absolutely. And I think what's, what, what's similar about sports and politics as well is that those notions of uh, fair play can quite easily break down. And we talk about them a bunch in part because we know that there are times when, uh, you know, players start beating each other up. In soccer, this happens at the World Cup sometimes, right? Suddenly two people are actually, like, o- on the field nearly having a fist fight. Um, and and that's pretty destructive. I mean, you know, the problem, of course, is how do you respond to rank and civility on the other side? Um, you know, what's happening in our politics at the moment, in my mind, is that the president of the United States is uh, disrespecting the most basic rules and norms of our political system, um, basically arming himself with unfair advantages. Um, it's as though you turn up uh, to play American football and uh, one team starts to turn up with baseball bats and threatens to beat you up with them. Um, and that obviously raises the question for the other side of what to do. Um, and I don't have an easy answer to that. I mean, one possible response is to get baseball bats of our own because we need to defend ourselves. But if we do that, uh, you know, I guess we might win uh, whatever carnage ensues, but we're sure not playing football. Um, uh, but but just turning up uh, unarmed and letting the opponent slaughter you is not a very good response either. So in order to preserve uh, our ability to play a game by the rules and compete for victory, we need to have this agreement across the aisle that certain things are untouchable. You don't show up to the football game with a baseball bat and start beating up your opponents. That is not the game. Um, and and John McCain, I think, is somebody who who understood that. Um, and despite various moments in his career when perhaps he could have lived by those values even better than he did, uh, certainly was a force uh, uh, propping up that that agreement in our political system that we need in order to preserve democracy. All right. So let's uh, torture this analogy a little bit more and say that the uh, people who were supposed to break up the fight on the soccer field, the refs, so to speak, uh, of political discourse traditionally have been the press. I mean, the press would be at least part of that. So you see President Trump 
uh, and um, and Putin at their Helsinki press conference, and a lot of very strange things get said. Um, and then, you, you know, you cut to whoever, in our case, Mary Louise Kelly here at NPR, who, whose job I think it is at this point to say, okay, these are things which nobody ever typically says. That thing that was said was especially strange in my experience. That other moment where President Trump seemed to prefer the version of truth marketed by President Putin to the version of truth marketed by his own intelligence services really represents kind of a watershed, bizarre moment. So, I mean, that's kind of the role that the the press can play anyway in terms of sorting things out in the field and pulling apart the pile of bodies after the fight, except that respect, as you know, <laughs> for the press in the American public is at an all-time low. I mean, nobody really trusts us to, to call balls and strikes anymore. Right. And, and this is, you know, when, when a football rival, we're really torturing this analogy now, but, but I'm having fun. Um, uh, you know, when uh, the rivalry gets, gets so heated um, that, you know, you, you see these games, right? The, 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 the games where there's a lot of um, contestation and the fans of one team are convinced that the refs are biased against their team and the fans of the opposing team are convinced that the refs are biased against the opposing team. And if you're the ref, you know that whatever you do, you can do your best to you know, call balls and strikes and so on. Um, but you're going to be hated at the end because the, the, the fans of the opposing team are going to be sure that you cheated them. Um, and I think that's slightly the position that the media are in right now. I mean, if you report on uh, something like the Helsinki Summit and you know express in a straightforward way how utterly unprecedented it is for an American president to prefer the uh, a version of events offered by a foreign dictator to that uh, offered by his own intelligence uh, services, you look like you're taking sides against the president and his supporters are going to say, well, look, you're biased. And if you don't do that, then people on the other side are going to say, you're not telling us the facts. So you, you, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Um, that's a very worrying state of affairs to be in. So uh, let's talk a little bit about here uh, towards the end about how you treat the disease. So um, there's a, an economist named Peter T. Coleman with a book called The 5%, where he argues that one out of 20 conflicts in the world, in, in domestic life, um, begins to fall into a different category, different from the other 19, in the sense that ultimately the dynamics of the conflict take over and become kind of a, a self-feeding inferno, uh, and the sources of the conflict begin to fall away. Uh, and then at that point, you really have to sort of treat the conflict very, very differently. You have to find, you have to really treat the conflict as the problem, as opposed to whatever ideological or personal grievances led to the conflict. I wonder if you think here in the United States, politically, we're at that point. We're at that point where the conflict has superseded the causes of the conflict. But that's a really interesting question. I mean, I certainly think that um, when you ask Americans about politics, they actually have reasonably sensible and moderate opinions. Um, and you don't see this huge cleavage in the middle. There's a distribution in which uh, most Americans actually prefer um, sort of reasonably common sense, moderate policies. Um, and there's not this huge gulp between them. Um, when it comes to partisan identity, when you ask them about what do you think uh, about Democrats or Republicans, what do you think about Donald Trump, you get this huge divide. So that's a piece of evidence to suggest that perhaps uh, we actually um, we don't have these deep disagreements about what our country should do, uh, and yet we've built this incredibly strong rivalry, which is um, a force in its own. Um, uh, look, I think it is following this example of healthy partisanship that John McCain 
set. I think ultimately the solution is not to try and say um, we should become friends and we should love each other and we should agree with each other on everything. That's never going to happen in a complicated, messy country like ours. Um, but it is to say that, that there is this crucial distinction between an adversary and an enemy. And that even when we disagree with each other, even when we think that what you want for this country is, is, is really bad, um, uh, we can have certain rules on which we all agree. Um, you know, you mentioned the media as one sort of equivalent, as one metaphor for, for, for the refs. I think that's, that's right. Um, but I think there's also a second thing, and that's for spectators um, who can participate, and that is uh, the American people. We need to get back to understanding how important those rules and norms are and punishing people who violate them. I guess the, the tortured analogy is, you know, if your sports team starts just routinely beating up the other team, uh, stop buying the merchandise, stop going to the game, say, this is not okay, that's not what I signed up for. Well, even if somebody has your political values, even if you're a, a, a liberal and a liberal uh, presidential candidate starts to really uh, violate the basic rules of our political system, say, no, I'm not going to stand for that, even though I might agree with you on healthcare policy. Uh, and one of the big problems we've seen over the last few years is that conservatives haven't been willing to do that. But some admirable conservatives have done that. They have said, I might agree with President Trump on uh, tax reform, but nevertheless, I'm not going to support him on the substance of most things because I am flabbergasted by the way in which he's attacking our political system. But many, many others have chosen to be complicit, and that's a problem. Um, we're going to stop here. It's a good place to stop, I think. Uh, I'm going to take calls in the next segment. We've been talking. First of all, we want to thank our friends at Argo Studios who managed to squeeze us in today to do this interview with Yasha Munk. And goodbye to Yasha Munk. It's always a pleasure uh, to have him on. He has a special kind of thoughtfulness. Um, so thanks for being with us again, Yasha. Thank you so much, Colin. And welcome back. Um, I did say before that uh, the rest of the show will be phone calls. So let me give you the phone number. Or it won't be phone calls. <laughs> In which case, the rest of the show will be me Maybe will be me talking. All right. I'm told I'm off mic here. There we go. So um, the rest of the show will be phone calls or me talking. It's your choice. 860-275-7266. We're having a lot of problems today. I don't, I don't know why it is. We're all like, well, all came back fuzzy-headed from the weekend. 860 275 7266. Um, so let me set it up this way. Uh, you just heard that conversation with Yasha Monk. And I, I do think that we have a disease in this country. Uh, it's a disease of division and mistrust. Um, some of the latest Pew studies, Pew studies political polarization, Pew Research Center uh, studies political polarization really well. And basically they're finding that, yeah, we are more likely to be afraid of one another. Republicans are afraid of Democrats. Democrats are afraid of Republicans uh, and to dislike one another. And when you talk about people who are really active in their parties, you know, who are regular voters and maybe participate in their parties in other ways, the percentage goes up to around 70. 70 percent of Democrats are actively afraid of Republicans and the reverse. Republicans afraid of Democrats. So, I mean, I think we can agree that that's not ideal. <laughs> 
<laughs> that having s large constituencies of the American political process dislike and distrust uh, and have a distaste for one another won't get us very far. And that, you know, the proper legacy, the way to venerate John McCain uh, would probably be to see ways in which we can collaborate. Uh, that was something that he was often very good at. So how do we do that? 860-275-7266. And so while I'm waiting for you guys to think of a magic solution to this problem, let me tell you just to give you a quick reminiscence. Uh, so there's somebody else who died in the last few days, and his name was Larry Denardis, and he was, among other things, and he's a member of Congress, Republican member of Congress from the New Haven area, uh, but also uh, he was a state senator. And so in 1979, well, let me just back up and say, I think most people who listen to this show can tell that I pretty much vote Democrat. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm, I haven't cast very many votes for Republican candidates in my life. I don't think I'm incapable of doing that. In fact, there was an election recently where I would have done it if the Republicans had nominated the candidate I thought that they might nominate. I was completely prepared to vote for that person and would have. So I'm not incapable of it. But Honest Engine, yeah, I I shouldn't say that anymore. Right? That's like a bad thing to say. Okay, honestly, um, I vote for Democratic candidates pretty unvaryingly. However, so that might lead you to think that I'm in a state of polarization. I don't really feel that way. And so this is where my reminiscence begins. So back in 1979, uh, I first started covering politics and covering the state legislature. Um, and that's where Larry Donardis comes in. He was a state senator at that time. Now, at that time, the Democratic Party in Connecticut had had way too much power for way too long. And it, it had caused them institutionally anyway to be less than admirable. They, many of them were corrupt, like really corrupt. Uh, many of other ones were lazy. Uh, other ones were arrogant. Um, some of them were corrupt, lazy, and arrogant, <laughs> the triple crown. And I mean, there were also some very good Democratic legislators. And there was this reform wave coming up in the form of the very young Bill Curry, Cliff Lenhart, Marcella Fahey, people who were entering the system as Democratic candidates who clearly wanted to take the party in a different direction. But the party at that moment was encrusted uh, and, and infected with its own power. And so the Republicans, who had no power, no votes, very little ability to affect anything, I mean, it was, you can say it's what I now call a cheap date with your conscience uh, in the sense that they could stand on principle without having to sacrifice anything because they didn't have anything that they would have to sacrifice, sacrifice. Their numbers were so small. So they did. They stood on principle. And so I became acquainted with legislators like Larry Donardis uh, and, uh, and Rusty Post, who, who was sort of uh, his kind of brother in arms over in, up in the Senate. There were some other, you know, senators of that type, but they, they stood out for me. Down in the House, John Berman, John A. Berman, my absolute favorite legislator of that time, a Republican, a man of tremendous principle, but also the very young Chris Shays. Chris Shays was at that point a state legislator um, and, and very much interested in doing things the right way. Um, Jerry Stevens, Ralph Van Nortzer, and I, I could name a whole bunch of other ones. The point was, they were much easier to admire than the Democrats who tended to hoard power. Um, and so my first introduction to politics up close, knowing the people, you know, knowing the people uh, on a close range, uh, firsthand basis, was first of all to see that 
too much power, excessive power, will corrupt anybody. There isn't anything magical about Republicans or Democrats. They are each side is as easily corrupted by too much power. Um, that was my perception anyway. And at the time, it, as I say, it was easier to to empathize with Republicans who who did. They stood for principle and they stood on principle. As I say. It's easier to do that when you've got nothing to lose by doing it. And they had nothing to lose by doing it because they had no power or traction whatsoever still. So I think that helped me. That helped me think. I, I hope it helped me be the kind of person who doesn't think of Republicans as automatically wrong and bad and mis, not merely misguided, but, um, but, but people with bad intentions, which is – I mean I'm not in that Pew study. I'm not one of the people who's afraid of Republicans. I hang out with Republicans. <laughs> I, I don't automatically dislike Republicans. Maybe another thing that's a little bit different for me was that I was raised – it's going to make me sound like some kind of political wolf boy. But I was raised by Republicans. My parents were both Goldwater Republicans. My father eventually bailed during Watergate. But my mother was a Republican her whole life. And I don't think my parents are bad people, you know. So therefore, <laughs> therefore, Republicans can't all be bad people because I don't think my I – I ultimately didn't agree with my parents' politics, but I didn't think they were bad people. So, you know, with all that in mind – it does seem to me that we have to make a distinction between ideology and virtue, right? We can have a very, very different uh, set of uh, political beliefs, policy beliefs from somebody on the other side of the aisle. So you look at John McCain and you think, well, really, once you get past some of the, some of the well-publicized stuff that he did that was highly bipartisan – a lot of his beliefs were rock-ribbed conservative beliefs. This guy was not wishy-washy on a lot of the core conservative issues. But was he a man of virtue? I would say yes. I mean, his virtues were quite obvious. So that's the, that's the distinction I'm making right now. I mean, Yasha talked about the difference between an adversary and an enemy. I'm saying there's also a difference between ideology and virtue. You should be able to look across the aisle and see people of virtue. If you can't, if you don't, it means one of two things. Either the system is so broken that it only produces people uh, of, of little or no virtue on one or both sides of the continuum, which I think is unlikely, actually. Or there's something wrong with the way you're looking. And I would pile on top of that. And then we're going to get to Rick and Martin, who are both fine callers. Um, I would pile on top of that that we've got sort of a, a media and information problem, right? Um, I think the problems, the kind of, kind of venomous, toxic polarization that we're living with right now coincides sharply with the rise of the Internet. People do not think in complex ways or express themselves in complex ways, typically on the Internet. Uh, they express themselves in very stark, visceral ways. Uh, and the rise of politically specific media. I mean, the right-wing media is bigger and more well-documented than the left-wing media. But even on the left, there are institutions like Daily Coast that are not the tiniest bit interest, interested in thinking in complicated, bipartisan ways. All right. So I'll shut up. The number is – well, I won't shut up. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. I'm going to find my magical cursor. There it is. And I'm going to talk to Rick. Rick in Hartford. Hi, Rick. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Uh, my headline is, whatever happened to of the people, by the people, and for the people? 
I think political parties are divisions. They create identity, but do they create virtue? Sometimes, in the case of John McCain, I think they did. But my solution, kick up the voter participation number. Approaching, I don't know what it is now, but it surely isn't close to 75%, and which is where I think it should be. And that's all I have to say on that. Well, it's a really good point, and it goes back to what um, what Yasha was saying about spectators. You know that that yes, the media can be refs, but the spectators can be refs too. And the spectators, there are ways in which the spectators can express their preferences. The most poignant one is through voting, because in fact, you know, you know, ultimately, yes, you don't like uh, the way things are. You can change it uh, if enough of you vote. And yeah, I mean, by the way, uh, political participation, it's kind of all over the map. In presidential years, it runs high. But we just saw primaries uh, here in Connecticut in which 25 to 30 percent of the eligible voters voted. And uh, in those instances, when it was 30 percent, we called that a victory. That that was high participation. 30 percent. Think about that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, we live in a consumer society. If you don't like something, you don't buy it. Right. Voting, voting yeah. is a vote and a purchase or a rejection. More people need to do it. Maybe we need Amazon ratings of political ideas um, and little customer reviews too. Like you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, ta- I tried Paul Ryan. It didn't work. I sent him back. Uh, see, but now I'm being a polarized person. I don't mean to do that. All right. Here's Audrey from Goshen. Hi, Audrey. You're on the air. Hi. Hi. I, I was just thinking um, I'm about the same age as you, and I went through some of the same stuff uh, years ago, preferring, although I was a longtime Democrat, I thought that uh, the Republicans seemed to be cleaner. But I left the Democratic Party for, for a few years, and just for a few years, and then I've recently come back, and I feel awful about the Democratic Party right now. And, but unlike the Republicans from those earlier years, the Republican Party is just is worse, still worse. Right. So, I mean, this, I was very upset by this primary campaign in the 5th District, where I felt it was a very, at the end, sleazy primary it just makes me feel icky right now. Well, so tell me which, uh, in other words, are you talking about the actual 5th District Congressional primary? Yes. And, and if so, which yes. which part, uh, the yes, Democratic one? I, I was a curious observer. I'd never been to a convention. I went to it, and I felt they, that the powers that be tried to ram through an unvetted candidate. And then they turned it into this, like, I felt dishonest narrative of what was going on behind the scenes. And I really feel that people like Chris Murphy and Elizabeth Esty wanted to decide who was going to be in the 5th District. And they were, I mean, there was a movement uh, a month after Glassman announced her candidacy. There was an anybody but Glassman campaign behind the scenes. And and then all this, like, there, there was dark money, pack money involved in a Democratic primary. I well, mean, yeah. that was just unbelievable. Like, $65,000 was spent two weeks before the, the final primary vote. I mean, I just find it was so uh, dishonest. And they put out these false narratives as to what was happening. I think power has 
gone to Chris Murphy's head. I mean, it's just <laughs> unbelievable. All right. So there's a lot to unpack there. First of all, and I didn't even mean to use unpack as a pun about PACs. This certainly wouldn't be the first time PAC money got into a Democratic uh, primary fight or any kind of Democratic campaign. So uh, we should at least be clear about that. I, I will say this, Audrey, if you want to lose all faith in political parties and the political party process, go to a state convention or, in your case, a congressional district convention. I mean, th- you know, one thing Murphy has said uh, is maybe it's time to get rid of them. I mean, we're unusual here in Connecticut that we still have this process. I don't really see at this point, other than entertaining political geeks like me and giving us something to write and talk about, what purpose that convention provides. I mean, going straight to primary uh, through a signature qualifi- qualification process or, or pick something, uh, but that's probably what it is. I, I don't see you know why that wouldn't be better, easier, and, and for people like you, I can completely understand. I didn't happen to be at that convention, but I was at enough of them this time around and enough of them in the past to understand why that would make your heart sink. <laughs> I mean, that it's not it's not I would argue that anyway. I wasn't at that particular convention. I've heard a lot about well, it. Well, I'll tell you, yeah. I'll, I just interrupt. Sure. I thought the Democratic the party, you know, when there was an appeal that went to Hartford, I, I was just shocked when. You know, I was always raised to believe that every vote counts. And the people who voted, the four people who switched their vote, which you're perfectly allowed to do, they, they went in and testified that, yeah, they switched their vote and they gave their reasons why. And they wanted to keep their vote switched, you know. But I felt the Democratic Committee in Hartford or whatever, this review, was very cowardly by giving two votes back you know, when they know it wouldn't really change it, but they said, okay, we'll throw a bone. And I'm like, well, what about these people who testified through no fault of their own because it was recorded incorrectly? I'm a little confused because Hartford is not in the 5th District. But well, no, but there was this meeting about those vote switch in Hartford, the Democratic. Oh, okay, yeah. They had a meeting on that, and then they gave two votes back, even though the people said, no, I switched my vote, and they wanted their votes, you know, and they reaffirmed it. And and I thought, well, here these people testified, and because they were incorrectly re- recorded... Right. There's a lot of that go- that goes on. We're getting a little granular, which is fine, but uh, I, I want to see if I can... Uh, we're going to go to a break, and then I'm going to try to restore the conversation a little bit in the direction that Audrey, a fine caller, started us out in. Because here she is meandering through the political landscape, looking for a beacon of truth and light. And so she's a Democrat, then she's a Republican or an unaffiliated, and she's back to the Democratic Party. And one of the thing that she said that I think we need to hang on to uh, as we head into the next um, and final segment is that ultimately she's feeling pretty lousy about both parties. Um, she's not happy with the Democratic Party. The Republican Party seems even worse to her. By the way, when I said yes in response to that, I wasn't saying that is a judgment on the Republican Party so much as I'm really aware of that sentiment of people who they may be pretty invested in their own party uh, but have doubts about it, but they see the other party as infinitely worse. That sword cuts both ways, too. I hope we get a chance to talk about that. All right, let's take a break. The number, when we get back, and we have Martin and Rick, who are already ready to go, 860 275 7266 860 275 7266 
Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish does not get along with crabs. The part of Bill Curry was played by Russ Feingold. On tomorrow's show, we revisit the amazing story of the three judges who hid from their would-be executioners in New Haven. Our guest is Lord Charles Spencer. You may remember his sister. And now, back to Colin. All right, we are indeed back. The number is 860-275-7266. We're talking about that kind of toxic polar, uh, political polarization, which makes it impossible, seems to make it impossible, for even people who are federal office holders, U.S. senators, U.S. representatives, to see one another as people. Uh, which used to be a rel- relatively easy thing to do. At the end of the day, you could go out uh, for a drink or a cup of coffee or something with the person on the other uh, side of the aisle. You heard me tell that Trent Lott story where he calls up Bill Clinton and apologizes for calling him a brat on Meet the Press the day before. That just doesn't seem possible right now. And I don't think you can entirely blame it all on Trump, although you can blame some of it on Trump. All right, here's Rick in Rocky Hill. Hi, Rick. You're on the air. Hi, Colin. Just wanted to say that um, I think uh, an easy way to uh, solve part of the problem of this polarization is we need to put ourselves in uh, other people's minds. Like, mm-hmm. I'm I'm pretty pretty liberal here in Connecticut, and I have family that lives out in Kansas. You know, a red state, and um, their views are obviously completely different from mine. But uh, I practice this uh, this little technique I do where I try to kind of take an idea that I came up with myself that maybe isn't something we would normally think of here in Connecticut and try to uh, kind of own it. And, and I argue with my wife about it and try and play kind of devil's advocate. And it, it, it really, it really uh, kind of reinforces this feeling of kind of being on the other side. And you can, you can see the validity of their arguments and, and uh, you know, the virtue of their viewpoint. Um, just to give you a quick example, mm-hmm. um, the uh, my wife's a nurse. So um, I said to her the other night, you know, I think the healthcare system in this country is really just a way to enable people to live unhealthy lives because you know that someone's there is going to pick you up and fix you. So we eat too much. We don't exercise enough. We take drugs. We maybe have multiple sex partners, um, you know, and a lifetime of that eventually leads to illness. And, uh, you know, the insurance company is going to pay for you to go to a hospital and get fixed. But if we had to pay ourselves out of our own pocket, um, you know, a strictly cash-based system, which I know is crazy, but <laughs> just as an example, extreme example, uh, you can kind of see the, the, the feeling that these people have where they don't want to have something that, you know, like the ASA, what we used to call Obamacare. So uh, in my view, it's really a matter of, of kind of trying these little exercises mentally. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it you begin to see the validity of the other side. And maybe you, you, maybe you compromise. I'm having a brain freeze because there's a term, uh, kind of a, an official political science term um, for what you just described. The, will, the fact that you might, in fact, expose yourself to a little bit more risk if you know that there's a safety net waiting for you. But I can't remember what it is. But I think your overall point's a really good one, which is we have to, uh, there, you have to walk ideologically and maybe even emotionally. Because let's also remember, 
you know, back to people like Jonathan Hayter with the righteous mind. We're not as rational as we think we are. They're not as irrational as, as we think they are. Um, and, and so we have to a little bit. We have to also inhabit the feelings of other people. Uh, if I say uh, that I was afraid of Donald Trump in 2016, and somebody else says a Republican says, "Well, I was afraid of Hillary Clinton in 2016." My first reaction is, well, that just shows how completely distorted your thinking became from watching Fox News or whatever. Whereas what I should do is go, tell me more about why you were afraid of her. What what made you afraid of her? Uh, and if we're afraid to have that conversation, we're, we're not going to understand one another well enough to do any of the healing work here. I have a whole other set of things I want to say, but we've got a lot of calls, so I'll move on. Here's Martin in Mansfield. Hi, Martin. Hello, Colin. Thank you for taking my call, and thank you for this show. Well, thank you. Well, um, I originally called, uh, had a comment related to your guest's um, analogy about sports and politics and spectators and referees, and after I've been listening to the last several commentators, I have um, a little bit more perspective that actually does kind of relate to that. And let me start by saying, yes, we do need to understand each other as Democrats, independents and Republicans. That's the only way that democracy can ever have a chance. My father, lifelong Republican, and I definitely am not, would go to the polls on Election Day. And here in Connecticut, at least back in the day, there would be a printout sheet where they cross off names and he could see the names of all of his children who had not voted yet. And he would call them during the day and say, you have to get out and vote. You have to be part of this. Now, he would call me and he knew he knew I was not going to vote the same way he did. Mm -hmm. But that is part of it. We in order for democracy to really work, we have to hear all the voices and we have to have the debate. We have to have the discussion. And I think that ties in to what my original thoughts were, listening to your, your guest. Um, yeah, this idea about spectators having a having some power that I cannot go to the game. And then, yes, they, there's an economic impact that people have to accept. I can boycott the products. It kind of breaks down in the political sphere because in politics, if I sit it out, my life is still impacted. No matter what I do, my life is impacted. As a spectator, if the Red Sox beat the Yankees or the Yankees beat the Red Sox, either way, whichever whatever the fan I am, I go to work. My life actually hasn't changed all that much. But right. in the political sphere, it really, really does. So yeah. The only referees really are the people who are being denigrated at this point. Right. I do think and, that and that's just, a really important breakdown. Yash is not here to defend himself. I think his point wasn't don't vote. It was d d there are ways in which you support a team by buying its merchandise or buying tickets or okay. whatever. You know, okay. don't don't support people. If you're a spectator in the political process, don't support people who are doing the, th the kinds of things that trouble you the most and seem the most divisive and d therefore do support those other people. I, I don't think he was suggesting withdraw from the process. First of all, I just know him too well than to think that he would ever suggest such a thing. All right, we have just a few minutes left. I'm going to squeeze, oh, we have three women callers now. I'm always fishing around for women callers. All right, well, Marianne's all ready to go. So, Marianne, uh, you have the last word. <laughs> or you don't because you're not here. 
<laughs> Marianne, you had a chance to land the plane. All right. Uh, here's Wendy instead. Wendy in Valhalla, New York. Uh, it must be nice to live in Valhalla. Wendy, you're on the air. Well, not live in Valhalla, but work in Valhalla. Okay. Hi, uh, Colin. Um, I, I keep on thinking back to the Tea Party days and wondering, it seemed to me that that was where the friction began that I noticed. And wondering if they didn't become kind of go into the Freedom Caucus. And um, I don't know. It's just a thought. I, well, I think it's a, a worthy thought. But I think the next step should be, um, yeah, I'm not prescribing this for you. I'm just sort of saying for anybody who's listening who might be thinking the same way, to be, investigate the origins of the Tea Party. Why did the Tea Party rise up? Did it rise up for uh, the, the for reasons that in a Kantian a priori way we could say, well, those are ignoble reasons, those are bad reasons? Or is there a way to understand the wellsprings of the Tea Party and why people flocked enough to its standard so as to in order to be able to depose uh, more conventional Republicans. Because you're right. I mean, you're, you're right in a way that the Tea Party uh, is one of the things that makes consensus difficult. It drives out. It, it makes a guy like John Boehner, who might have seemed not much like a consensus seeker, to seem comparatively or relatively like a consensus seeker. But I think the next question is, what was going on in the minds of those people who, A, became candidates in the Tea Party, and B, um, flocked to its standard and voted for those candidates. I mean, not in a superficial way either, but like emotionally. Where were they? What, what, what were they thinking about? Because if we don't understand them, if all we ever do is denigrate and disparage them, then we don't make any progress. Does that make any sense to you? Yeah, it does, because it, it's true that uh, there are always winners and losers, and it's really very unfortunate, and I would like to think that in a democracy, as my grandfather from Greece would have thought, that, you know, it really was for everyone right. and not, you know, not just for a few. And that's why it was such a brilliant idea. <laughs> and it's stuck around for all these thousands of years. Now I'm struggling with the fact that your grandfather's from Greece, but you're phoning me from a Norse mythology hangout. I uh, know. Don't you love it? Well, listen, I'm Greek and my husband's Norwegian. Uh, I mean, how weird is that? Only fish yeah. is the only thing we have in common. And, and, and lots of gods. Anyway, we have to go, Wendy. It was great to talk to you. Great to hear from anybody in Valhalla. My best to Odin. Uh, meanwhile, well, tomorrow we've got this really, it's a show from the past, but it's, a, it's one of my favorite shows ever, which practically guarantees that most people won't like it. But listen, indulge me. Listen to it anyway. <laughs>